You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S.-Russian summit took up cyber conflict, cyber privateering, and cyber deterrence, ending with the prospect of further discussions, ferocious kittens, domestic surveillance, ransomware gangs are using a lot of initial access brokers, the mole rats are back, troubleshooting a wave of intermittent internet interruptions, NSA offers advice on securing business communications tools, Ukrainian police arrest six alleged clop gangsters, Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros on bringing the private sector back into the defense equation, our guest is Charles Herring of Witfu with the case for cybersecurity as an extension of law enforcement, and nine alleged ransomware hoods are collared in Seoul. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, June 17th, 2021. The Russo American summit between Presidents Putin and Biden concluded yesterday after three hours of face to face talks. Reuters calls them professional as opposed to friendly, with some expressions of a willingness to pursue matters of arms control and cybersecurity going forward. Recent ransomware attacks came up, the New York Times writes, characterizing the two countries as remaining profoundly divided on this and other matters, with President Biden requesting an explanation and President Putin denying any Russian involvement. In a post-summit media availability, The two presidents did not hold a joint press conference. Mr. Biden said the discussion went like this, quote, I looked at him and said, how would you feel if ransomware took on the pipelines from your oil fields? He said it would matter. I pointed out to him that we have significant cyber capability and he knows it, end quote. Forbes reads the U.S. position as a direct promise of retaliation in kind to future Russian cyber attacks, Presumably, the retaliation would be proportionate and symmetrical, but it does seem to represent a move toward some commonly understood deterrence regime, short of the Cold War's mutual assured destruction, and with greater ambiguity, but an attempt at deterrence nonetheless. Computing reports that President Biden not only made reference to U.S. retaliatory capabilities, 
but also argued that critical infrastructure should be off-limits to cyber attack. For his part, President Putin gave, according to TASS, a fairly ironic take on the summit, quote, As for the assessment, I believe there was no hostility at all. On the contrary, our meeting was certainly held in a principled manner. We differ in many respects in our assessments. However, to my mind, both sides showed willingness to understand each other and seek ways to bring the positions closer. The conversation was quite constructive, end quote. The New York Times reports that Russian government-aligned media have taken the line that President Biden is a man we can do business with and that it's gratifying to see that he recognizes Russia as a great power. A report by Kaspersky Labs details a six-year record of domestic surveillance by an Iranian APT, Ferocious Kitten. As suggestive as the circumstantial evidence may be, Kaspersky doesn't explicitly attribute the operations to Iran's government, but CyberScoop reports FireEye sees a connection. Security firm Proofpoint discerns a trend among ransomware gangs. They're relying less upon phishing and more on the services of initial access brokers to obtain a foothold in victims' networks. As their report puts it, quote, Ransomware operators often buy access from independent cybercriminal groups who infiltrate major targets and then sell access to the ransomware actors for a slice of the ill-gotten gains. Cybercriminal threat groups already distributing banking malware or other Trojans may also become part of a ransomware affiliate network. The result is a robust and lucrative criminal ecosystem in which different individuals and organizations increasingly specialize to the tune of greater profits for all, except, of course, the victims. End quote. Proofpoint also published a report this morning outlining recent activity by the Mole Rats, which Proofpoint also calls TA-402, an Arabic-speaking, politically-motivated threat group closely associated with elements in Gaza and active principally against Middle Eastern targets. The group is interested in espionage, and its targets are generally governments, or what Proofpoint calls government-adjacent organizations. The group's latest campaigns use custom malware, LastCon, which appears to be an upgraded version of the previously observed SharpStage malware. LastCon both gains access to the targets and collects information from them. The malware sports distinctive features that render both automated and manual analysis difficult. Those features include geofencing on the basis of IP address, restricting target selection to computers with Arabic language packs installed, and distributing malware in password-protected archive files. The mole rat's typical approach to their targets in this campaign was spear phishing. One interesting observation Proofpoint makes is that, whereas the mole rats had been making attacks on a weekly basis, they abruptly went on a two-month hiatus between March and early May, which coincided with both fighting in Israel and Gaza and with observance of Ramadan. Whatever the reason for the time off, the mole rats seem to be back. Akamai is working to resolve issues with its content delivery platform that have caused brief intermittent outages in airline and financial services sites, CNN reports. The U.S. National Security Agency this morning released advice on securing unified and voice communication. NSA describes the focus of the guidance as minimizing risk of disclosing sensitive info or losing service while using VVoIP. 
Risks include eavesdropping, impersonating users, or perpetrating denial-of-service downtime. Unified communication systems and their closely allied voiceover IP systems offer rich and easy collaboration tools. But they also, and this is a familiar story, offer a more expansive attack surface than do old-school voice telecommunications. NSA advises network segmentation, Layer 2 protections, PSTN and Internet perimeter protection, staying up-to-date with patching, authentication and encryption of signaling and media traffic, deploying standard fraud detection measures, using backups and monitoring to ensure availability, managing the risk of distributed denial of service, controlling physical access, and verifying your systems in a testbed. Ukrainian police have arrested six alleged members of the Klopp ransomware gang. The record reports that law enforcement agencies from the Republic of Korea and the United States rendered assistance. The police seized not only servers, but a lot of cash and some fancy luxury cars, which suggests the alleged gangsters were living the gangsta lifestyle, as seen even on Ukrainian TV. And finally, a most unwelcome form of computer customer service has surfaced in South Korea, where police in Seoul arrested nine employees of a local computer repair company. They're charged with creating and installing ransomware on their customers' computers. The authorities say the suspects got about $321,000 in ransom payments from the 40 or so companies they serviced in 2020 and 2021. Not all the repair company's employees were involved, and the alleged perpetrators were all in the Seoul office. Still, on balance, this can't be good for repeat business. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
people have varying opinions when it comes to choosing the best metaphor for approaching cybersecurity. Some think it's most similar to public health, emphasizing things like basic hygiene and herd immunity. Others see it as a public safety issue, making sure you have proper locks on your doors and windows, and that you can summon law enforcement if need be. Charles Herring is co-founder and CTO of WITFU, providers of a SecOps security platform. He joins us to make the case that coming at cybersecurity using a law enforcement model is the way to go. So about 20 years ago, after 9-11, I was on active duty in the U.S. Navy and detailed to the Naval Postgraduate School to spin up what we would call today the cybersecurity group there. And there was... The first thing that we spent a lot of time debating was, should the network security group be a security group (laughs) that focuses on the Navy, I mean, on the the network? So should the security group be a group that focuses on the network, or should it be a network group that has some security function? And the way that played out is I ended up working for the director of security for the base, and uh, instead of working for the CIO or chief information officer. And the meetings I would have in the department would be with the base police and the intelligence officers, and we would talk about adversaries, criminals, and crimes. And so that was the scope of uh, my initial cybersecurity work. But then I would go to other meetings with the IT department, and we would talk about firewall rules and uh, patching and antivirus and those types of things. And so it was two different, completely different worlds that I got to experience virtually every day, um, each with different outcomes and uh, different goals. And that really led to a lot of the research that followed in the next 20 years was, should it be IT or should it be security? And, you know, where does, where does each one play a role? Hmm. I suspect for a lot of folks, we think that um, I, certainly the perception is that a lot of these uh, bad actors are getting away with what they're doing with little consequence. That's true. So if you, the, the analogy I like to build is if you were, if you built a home and you put a large wall around it and barbed wire fence and put um, bars on the door and moats around the walls, the reason you do that is to increase the amount of time it would take for a criminal to get inside the home and execute a crime. But if there are, if the police are never called, if you're not able to shoot at or protect, uh, create pain for the criminal, those things don't mean anything. They can blow up the wall. <laughs> they can dig under it. It's mm. the, and that's the role that we're supposed to do in security, increasing risk until law enforcement shows up. The major deficiency we have right now is we're not in the habit of collecting evidence in a way that's going to allow us to communicate with law enforcement. And there's also risk associated with calling law enforcement that we're afraid of um, what they will discover as part of their investigation, whether it's someone in our organization or something being disclosed. And so what's happening is sort of this code of silence that occurs. We never inform law enforcement. Really, law enforcement is the only group that can go and uh, translate an IP address to a human being and put handcuffs on the person because the IP addresses don't care about being blacklisted, <laughs> right? Mm. It's like uh, putting handcuffs on the getaway car. It's a component of the crime. And until we're able to take what we consider logs in IT, turn it into evidence, turn that evidence into affidavits, get that, those affidavits to law enforcement, we can't uh, close the loop on what, it, what does it take to 
move away from just always being terrified and trying to be the last person criminalized. Or, uh, or as a friend of mine said this last week, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun the slowest person that the bear's chasing. Right. That, me- that mentality is bad citizenry. <laughs> and eventually <laughs> the bear figures out that you're tastier than the slow guy, which is starting <laughs> to occur now. And that doesn't right. even work anymore. That's Charles Herring from Witfu. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I am pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, I know lately you have been doing some writing with some of the work you do with uh, NWC about this notion of bringing the private sector into the defense equation. What, what can you share with us about that work? Yeah, so the, the project largely stems on you know, focusing on lessons unlearned in cyber over the last decade or so. And you know, one of the ones that I've seen is just really the lesson unlearned is really how to integrate the role of the private sector in in some regards, even just acknowledging just the, how much the private sector is on the front line of, of attacks. And so we really, you know, we're, we're still very much so stuck in Cold War, ment- Cold War mentalities when thinking about what the private sector can and cannot do, what the role of it is, how even the, the um, private sector and the government can interact. And so it's really gotten to the point where, one, we haven't evolved our thinking on that at all, despite you know, the enormous attacks that continue to, be, that continue to hit the private sector, but it's also leading to, you know, to the divide. We hear about the Silicon Valley, D.C. divide that's been going on for quite some time. And even you know, to the point, you know, in a very recent testimony, um, Senator King said that basically smaller companies in Silicon Valley especially have given up on the Pentagon. And so that's not something that is very sustainable for our national security. And you know, fortunately, there have been, you know, that it's, that's a, a known problem. And so that's starting to get addressed. But the challenge is that, you know, it's, it's not changing enough. And so in some regards, the Pentagon-Silicon Valley gap, that you know, is how it's generally framed, is starting to be addressed by things such as the Defense Innovation Unit and Defense Works, those kind of new governmental programs that are aimed at expediting the acquisition process. And then conversely, you know, there are plenty of efforts out there, not plenty, but there, there are some efforts out there that are trying to get technologists into policy, like the Aspen Tech Policy Hub, Tech Congress, um, NSI is a technologist fellowship. And so all those programs are really great, and they're very useful at addressing specifically the Silicon Valley-DC divide. But the private sector is much bigger than that. And so we really need to think about you know, what will the role of the private sector be you know, potentially in warfare? I mean, so that, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes it takes a shock to really think these kinds of thought, these new thinking about how to address it. But like in the pandemic, we saw many in the private sector switch their 
manufacturing model to help support um, you know, manufacturing of, of health equipment. Mm. And so the, you know, the question is, you know, what, would ha- what would happen you know, if, we, if there was some sort of conflict? What would the, be the role of the cybersecurity community? What would be the role of others in the, in the, in the, you know, the financial sector, and the energy sector, you know, really the broader manufacturing sector? And so we really don't have good answers for that because we still think about it much more so in, in a Cold War mentality. And so we really are, we're at a point, though, where the private sector is really rethinking their role as far as the role with national security, and even as far as you know, their own footprint. And so we're at a, actually a very opportune window right now where because the private sector has had so much disruption from COVID, from um, the reshoring and the very supply chain disruptions, they're rethinking their global footprint right now and, and their role in building technology and what's in their technology stack. And so it's a really good time for the government to th- rethink, you know, how could those, you know, how could the private sector and public sector work together? Um, you, you have more in the private sector now that are much more willing to address some of the national security concerns. Um, it's not all of them, but there are some much more so now than in the past. And so what can we do to bring the, the private sector back into the defense equation and do things that are, you know, as it makes sense, you know, collaboration in the areas of where the bottom line and national security overlap. And I, I'd argue that that overlap is, is bigger than it has been in, in quite some time. When you say that we're still approaching this from a Cold War mentality, what, what does that mean? Yeah, you know, it's basically, and it's on both sides, by the way. It's both on, several times we hear it's coming from the government side and also very much so on the private sector. Where For a while, it was, you're really thinking of the government is the one is in charge of entirely national security. The private sector is in charge of business. And, and, and for a lot, you know, the, the two don't cross. You know, early in the Cold War, especially much even more so during World War II, the private sector played a much more outsized role uh, in national security. And that really has just kind of ebbed since that time. And so we need to you know, get back to thinking about how uh, the private sector can be a, a, an asset towards national security. And it can be in a variety of ways. And it doesn't necessarily have to be actually even being involved in warfare. But when you think about you know, the, the restructuring going on as far as the various technologies and what technologies and companies are allowed and not allowed within businesses these days, you know, that there's been over 300 Chinese companies that have been named by commerce that are no longer allowed to be, you know, have partnerships with, with companies in the U.S. And so the U.S. is now, the U.S. corporations are being hit both by the various disruptions from the trade war and the tech war, as well as all these regulation shifts. And so they're really rethinking you know, where, the footprint of where they're going to be and what technologies are going to be in their tech stack going forward. And so that's a good time for the government to both help out as far as providing various kinds of incentives. Like Japan, for instance, is, is, has paid over $4 billion to its private, or is in process of paying that um, to their private sector to help them reshore. And so there's a lot on the, what the U.S. could do on the incentive side to help with the compliance to build towards those kind of trusted networks that the U.S. government wants to build for greater national security. And so there's just a lot that could be done in that area from, from that to you know, even a, a more of a holistic and actually you know, moving toward a, a federal data protection law would be very, very helpful. Um, just to have some you know, greater consistency across, it makes, it makes compliance a whole lot easier. And really you know, thinking about those you know, different areas and just you know, what could be the broad range of incentives that the government could help with to help move towards those trusted tech stacks, to move, you know, when they're, when they're thinking about reshoring, you know, helping out and facilitating where they may want to go and providing you know, additional kinds of you know, carrots for like-minded countries that might be good places both for the business, for the bottom line, but also may, might make sense nat- on the national security side. And so there's a lot of you know, transformations that are going on. And if the government and private sector can work a little bit better on that, um, I think we'll be just a lot more prepared going forward into the future to handle all the transformations that are going on. 
All right. Well, Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.